This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are discussing the events of the penultimate episode of Season 3 of The Chosen. Penultimate? Number 7? Yeah. Penultimate means second to last. Is that what that means? I never pass up an opportunity to use it, Marty. Oh my goodness, you should ac- actually leave this in the episode. I just like was so educated there for a moment. <laughs> I'm like, no, Brent, we're recording se- like episode seven, not episode eight. <laughs> that means I've been using penultimate wrong the whole time. Don't tell Reed Dent. Episode eight is the ultimate episode of season three. Oh, see? Who knew? Man, learn something new <laughs> with Brent Billings every day, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, uh, that's what I'm here yeah, for. Yeah, no, I, I'm good. This is one of my favorite episodes. I think this might be my favorite episode of the season. Um, I think that changes the season. The more I watch it, the more my different opinions change, and mostly all in good ways the more I interact with the episodes. But I think, I think this is in my top five of the three seasons, and I think my favorite of this season. The season's had some good ones, though. Really good episodes, but... This is it for me, I think. This is my this is my one. See ride or die. My 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 favorite, my ultimate, Brent. Not my penultimate, but my ultimate favorite. Fair enough. Uh I will say that Maggie has some thoughts oh. that I will be attempting to share to the best of my ability. Okay. Uh she has expressed concern that I may butcher her thoughts. <laughs> so <laughs> Well <laughs> just like Peter and <laughs> In the chosen, yeah. we'll assume that that's going to be relatively correct, and we'll 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 take all your expressions with a grain of salt. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into that as we discuss the episode proper. But I did ask her uh, if she thought that our fights were similar to Simon and Eden's fights, and she laughed and agreed. <laughs> well, there you go. At least you, at least you were good on your on your yeah. initial instinct. I like it. Okay. Well, so with that, let's uh, let's get into it, Marty. So we have Jairus uh, going through the story of Esther with his family. And then we see Zabedee doing the same thing with his family, plus Barnaby and Shula, which is a nice little touch. Yeah, it, didn't ca- it took me a while to figure out who was there, but I, I caught it. And that was wonderful. Celebrating Purim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we see people coming out of their houses and greeting each other and speaking blessings, doing all sorts of stuff. And then we see Simon throw a large pot down from... The second story of whatever, I guess it's his house. Uh, and he he screams and pretty intense emotions. Yep, good opening. <laughs> like I said, the writing's good. They always jerk you around from like, oh, yes, everybody's celebrating Purim to like the depths of frustration and despair and anger. And did it to me in the opening scene of this one. Yeah. And so Maggie was thinking... That Eden wasn't necessarily trying to keep it from Simon. Like, she says that line, like, I thought I could keep it to myself. But Maggie's perspective on that was that she wasn't necessarily trying to keep it from him so much as every time, like, she was kind of looking for an opportunity at various points where she could share. Yes. And that space never yes. materialized. I would, yeah. Every time there was an opportunity, like there was some kind of interruption. Yeah, agreed. I, I was actually surprised to hear her say the line that you referenced because that's how I was perceiving it the whole time. And I thought the line was actually well placed because there's probably a little bit of a dance, a tension, a combination of both of those realities, right? She's she's struggling with sharing it. She's trying to internalize it. She's also trying to share. It. I mean, that's very true to our own experiences where we're we're a hot mess between two extreme opposite positions and. 
And so I appreciated that line when I heard it. My initial reaction was, wait, what? And then, because I, I definitely have seen it, you know, that way that Maggie describes it. Like she was trying. Boy, she she kept trying to bring it up three or four times and they kept getting interrupted by something. Yeah. And so in the middle of Eden's grieving, like the ministry is so successful and so mm-hmm. exciting. And I mean, even in the moment where she has, you know, her overflow of like, I can't take anymore. I've got to tell you about it. Like Simon is very excited about what just happened. Yeah. And like Maggie was commenting, like, it's very difficult to be the wife of someone in a time consuming ministry. Sure. It feels like there's no time or space for her struggles or grief. Everything else feels like it's more important and lives are being changed. So it feels selfish to want to take from what God is doing sure. somewhere else and focus on her. How much more so with Jesus, right? Yeah. Right, right. And it can be incredibly lonely, but especially so in times of grief. Yep. And you just kind of feel unseen and unheard in light of the, you know, quote unquote, bigger, more important ministry. Yeah. And yeah, like there there are those moments where Eden is trying to share, but there's just these constant interruptions. They have visitors, they have guests, they have... Yep. Like Jesus coming into, like they have their meetings at her house. So like all this stuff is just happening all around her. And there's, I mean, I don't know. Like they do obviously get pregnant at some point. So they have to have some amount of time alone, but yep. it's just so minimal that every time Simon's home, there's other people around and they just don't have that space where it's like, the kind of the kind of space where you get to get through all the small talk and all of the events and you've talked through everything and then there's that awkward silence and then somebody's got to say something and then she has like okay I feel like now I can share because we've done away with all those pleasantries we've we've finished all of that yeah so she tries to push it down and keep her feelings to herself um like what is she gonna like she's she has those those moments like where where people come in and she just flips a switch and goes into host mode and like that takes a lot of emotional energy to do that. Yeah. Like it happens so fast it's like oh that was so easy for her. But no, like internally that takes such an immense amount of energy and eventually it bursts out. And um Maggie was pointing out like when you have a miscarriage and you don't have any other kids yet, there's this extra fear of like, what if, what if this is just how it goes right for me all the time? Right. Yep. So like we had a miscarriage before Darius and like Maggie dealt with that fear. Sure. For a while. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think it was another three or four months before we got pregnant again. And then, you know, the whole nine months of Darius, like she was just waiting for something to go wrong. Yeah. So, and then we had another miscarriage after Darius before Torin. And that was obviously hard, but not quite as hard as the first one because she knew like, even if nothing else works, we have Darius and like we did successfully have Darius. So mm-hmm. it's probably possible. But there's just there's just so much fear around it, right? And yeah, Eden's in the midst of that, and we'll find out more about right uh, why those fears are. I mean, I guess we can just say at the end uh, when John 
and Simon are walking together. Simon mentions that the doctor told Eden that there was so much damage in the midst of her miscarriage that she might not be able to have kids again. So she's, it's not just an irrational fear. Right. Not, not that there's not that it's irrational, but like, right. Like she has good reason to fear. Sure. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a tough situation. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Well said. Well said, Maggie through Brent. Uh, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't, yeah, maybe I'll see if I can have her listen to this recording and see, see what she even, thinks. <laughs> even started her at the end of an episode or within it before we can do it. That's again. true. Yeah. 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 If I totally, if I totally ruined it, I'll see if I can ever come in and fix it. I love it. All right. So with that, uh, we hit the credits. So we see Andrew and Philip walking on a road. Philip's walking slowly in trips. Uh, it seems like this is actually after they've gone back to the Decapolis. Yes, they're on their way back, I feel like. Yeah, initially when I saw this, I thought that they were on their way to the Decapolis. But uh, I guess it makes more sense why Philip is uh, a little yes. <laughs> brokenhearted. Finally get to see Philip's humanity. He's been such a yeah. rock of right. spiritual maturity. <laughs> and you're finally like, all right, this is where he gets to be a baby. I like it. And Andrew of all people. Andrew's the right, one right. speaking sense. And oh, goodness. <laughs> So Philip uh, kicks a rock and trips over it and probably broke his toe. Uh, when I first saw this episode, I did not understand that experience, but I have since broken a toe, Marty. And so I now, I now I know how he feels. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> can now relate to that experience. Um, so they, they get to the house. Uh, Judas is packing up food for Purim. Andrew's like, ah, I didn't even know it was a holiday. Like, he's just totally distracted and... Uh, he explains how they made things worse when they went back to the Decapolis by telling the parable of the banquet. <laughs> and uh, Thaddeus bursts in at this point, calls them to celebrate, and they're just like, they're totally strung out. They're, they don't know what to do with this situation. Yeah, one of the things I, I liked about how, you know, they're they're in here talking with Judas, um, you know, all these characters, initially Andrew and, and Philip. And I love how they depicted Judas as like cultural wisdom like he said well tell me about the story tell me about the parable you told and so they're telling they told the story of the, the parable of the banquet and judas immediately is like oh well that probably wasn't received well at all like judas is this more i i, I want to say worldly i don't mean that in an overly negative way i just mean he he's been his past life his vocation has put him in this again it's a part of his character development and i and then out of that conversation like part of what's rising to the surface for me as I listen to them talk is that this doesn't have this cultural wisdom that Judas taps into and maybe even doesn't realize how far he's tapping into this cultural wisdom. It, it's about how like the abstract content in and of itself is not, is not the point. It's not like if you get the content of the parable or the content of the teaching or the content, it's not that it's like. It's about it's about the people. It's having this awareness of the people that you're talking to, who they are, where are they from, what is their story, how does the content hit them, like. And I think that's instructive for us because I think we so often, like, we just lean into if we get the content right, if we get the subs, if we get the truth right, 
Nothing else, nothing else really matters. It doesn't matter who we're talking to, where we're at, what's going on. I just have to get the the theological or, you know, the orthodoxy correct, and then everything is okay. And I like that scene because it made, it made us think about, um, it provoked some critical thinking in that, you know, it's not just about the content of the parable. It's about how the parable is used and why and who you're talking to and that cultural wisdom of what it means to talk about theology and bring the kingdom in your immediate context. So I really appreciated that. Yeah, he's, uh, his, his job has taken him many places. I think a lot of the, I mean, not necessarily a lot, but some of the disciples don't have a lot of experience with a variety of people as Judas has. So it's good. Uh, let's see. Then we have Thaddeus bursting in and he calls them to celebrate. Um, did like, so Purim, like this is like, we see the, we see families celebrating together. Um, but would this be, this would be like a whole community celebration basically. Is that what we're absolutely. Yeah. And I, almost all your, almost all your festivals. I'm trying to think if there's, if there's an exception, all your festivals would have been very large. In fact, if I had a critique, like you mentioned Barnaby and Shula with the Zeb, the, with the family of Zebedee, if I have a critique, it probably is that that's not even big enough as they've depicted a lot of these parties and celebrations. Sure. These weren't intimate family celebrations and gatherings. These would have been multi-family, definitely extended family. You would have had, you know, many, many, many people, not just little solitary family units like we're used to in Western America culture. But um, so if there's anything, it, it would be that that I would actually say. Yeah, I, I forgot to mention that in that earlier scene, but yeah, like the... Them sitting around the table is what I've always imagined for this holiday. Um, but then for them to finish that story and then go out and celebrate, you know, in front of the house was was interesting. So, right. Yep. Yeah. It makes sense, though. Yes. So then we're over with Matthew, uh, who's reading with Tamar. Thomas enters the house. Everyone else comes in. Uh, they find out that Kafni, Raymond's father, is not a believer in Thomas. And uh, in spite of that, Thomas still has a little bit of hope because Rama is still there with him. She's working on him, whatever that means. Um, so they're, you know, hopefully, uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Maggie made a comment on this part of the episode too. She's like, I don't know if they're actually ever going to get together. That makes me sad. I'm like, well, I don't know either. We'll find out. It's a perfect opportunity to work. You know, if for some reason she had to get worked out of the storyline, <laughs> it's the perfect opportunity to do it. I don't know. I'm assuming she's coming back, but oh, man. Yep. I didn't think about that. I, I love Nathaniel's. I love how they made, you know, they didn't take the bait to make, you know, to overdo the Peter is such a blunt person. He always just speaks without thinking. They've they've kind of made that Nathaniel. And I just love Nathaniel's like blunt, straightforward Um. Like it's been there all along. It's just gotten a little bit more appropriately obvious throughout some of those things. How he addresses <laughs> Thomas. Are you embarrassed? Uh, I just love that. <laughs> that part of his character. Uh, yeah, I love it. It definitely is me sometimes. Uh, so then they, they're, they're kind of talking about uh, the situation that Andrew and Philip have stirred up. And Big James thinks that Jesus should not be intervening on behalf of the Gentiles. And Tamar's like, hey, I'm sitting right here. He's like, well, you're different. Uh, and then Philip quotes Isaiah 42. Yeah, back to being Philip again. I like that. Okay, yeah, he has his right, moment. Right, right. And Matthew, 
makes a comment that he's been studying Jesus, Jesus's genealogy <laughs> and it contains many Gentiles. I do. I did love that. I, <laughs> um, very Bema-y of him to say. So I, I loved everything about that. So uh, eventually, I think Mary makes a comment. She's like, hey, why don't we just go ask Jesus about this? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, it, it was it was particularly Big James that says, and I actually wrote this in my notes, like this has been something that's come up a few times. Uh, he says, she's right. And they they leave. And I this happened a few times. And I, I just made note of it because it's culturally significant that they Mary has a voice and they listen to her voice. They consider her voice. And they that's been more than a few times where she's been the one that's made a decision where they've respected that. They've said she's right. And not in like a mansplainy, like I have to say she's right. And and again, I don't think this element in The Chosen has been perfect. Um, historically, it's going to be tricky with their the patriarchal culture they live in to portray that necessarily. But I, I just think they've done that really well. And that component, I don't know how intentional it is on their part, but that that men in that setting would listen to Tamar or to Mary or to any of those women or Rama and look to them for expertise that she would say, hey, this is what you should do. And they would, you know, it was almost a corrective. Like, you're all arguing about this. You should go. And they they allow her to say that and say, yes, she's right. Let's go do that. I actually, I actually find that at different moments pretty refreshing. But it was also a shrewd comment on her part because sure. she's trying to get them out of there because she wants to talk to Matthew uh, about yes. the tassels yep. that she found. True. And uh, so she sits down and brings it up. And he is... Like just immediately offended and panics and storms out. Yep. And, you know, not not how Mary probably thought that was going to go. Yep. So then we get a, a short scene with Shmuel interviewing someone who had had an encounter with somebody. Turns out this guy was swindled. Wasn't Jesus after all. Uh, Shmuel is disappointed. <laughs> and the guy's like, what do you, well, you don't care about this guy taking advantage of me? He's like, ah. Well, nope. <laughs> well written, though, because it takes a while for like he's telling the story and it's a Jesus and he heard a sermon and he gave money and now he feels swindled. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this guy was here for the Sermon on the Mount. And now he, you know, he gave a donation. Now he wants his donation back. And then it becomes clear it's a different Jesus in a different setting. Uh, and, and he actually was conned. He was swindled. And I thought, OK, <laughs> it had me going, too. I'm I'm right there with Shmuel uh, about halfway through that exchange. OK, OK, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. The, at, at the end, he he makes a comment that the guy is um, looking to assemble an army at Beer Shiva. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, definitely not Jesus. <laughs> Different Jesus. <laughs> Uh, so then we're at the temple and someone... Did you notice the menorahs in the background, Brent? Did you notice? At the temple? Yeah. I, I did not. They had the big 40-foot Hanukkiahs in the background sticking up over the, the walls of the temple mount. And so I was just like, oh, check that out. It's a sign of what time of the year that they have placed it. And a little historical detail. Another one of those details they did not have to add, and they did. And they're actually... I checked. I paused it. They're only there for like a second and a half. And I paused it to see if they were Hanukkiahs or just menorahs. Did they have seven branches or nine? And they actually had nine branches on them. So I thought, hey, and I loved the visual because that is how I understand they would have looked as well. So I guess really another one of those historical details. Well done on their part. I loved it. Okay. Uh, well, someone brings a lamb to be inspected for sacrifice and 
Atticus approaches, are these guys supposed to be priests or? I assume so. And they just, they're wearing the, almost the exact same garb. Like I would have to go back and compare these scenes to see if there's any distinguishing markers like the, is it the kippa, the hats they have? But I mean, they look identical to the Pharisees. Yeah. They definitely have like, they've got some jewelry. I think their collar might be a little different. And that might be historically, I always assumed the priests were probably more in white and not black and that they would have been far more distinguishable from um, from the Pharisee sect. But this is now like the second or third or fourth time um that what I expected to be a priest I thought was a Pharisee. And now that I'm seeing them in the setting, I'm pretty sure that they, that was supposed to be a, a, a priest, not a Pharisee. But historically, I would have expected them to be, they would not want to, have, want to have been confused with each other. I think Levitically, I think they would be wearing more white. And typically that's how they're depicted in productions is the priests have more of a, a light colored garb and the Pharisees are more uh, darker colored, but Hey, I, I, not that I have evidence to say that's the way it was. So who knows? Sure. Well, Atticus approaches these guys and asks for some information about Jesus. They are uh, pretty upset that he's even in the area, um, but they finally give him some information and Atticus tosses an apple to one of them and the guy catches it and then immediately drops it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, just like these poor guys they're just trying to do their job sort of i mean they're not i don't know they're also they're also clearly like not filled with grace like not really optimistic about this sacrifice yeah if if these are like priest priests like sadducean deep in the heart of chief priesthood priests then my sympathy for them is dropping rapidly but other than that yeah right right Uh, yeah, we're, I don't think we are meant to, uh, really sympathize with them no. too much. In this scene. <laughs> no. Uh, so then we see Simon wandering through a Roman part of town. He's drawing all kinds of looks and, uh, a soldier approaches him and starts to give him, uh, a hard time. And then Gaius approaches and kind of saves Simon from this other soldier. And, um, the guy's like, what, what, why do you want to deal with this? Like this guy's a nobody. And, and, uh, He's like, well, he shouldn't have been in here in the first place. You got to go figure out. So pretty, um, pretty clever way of getting out of it by Gaius. I, I felt like, yep. you know, sometimes it's like, oh man, somebody's like, they're going to realize something's up. But I, I feel like that one was very much, uh, yep. yeah, he's, he's more concerned about. Yeah. So I thought that was good. Uh, then we get inside Gaius's house and Simon's looking around and like seeing all the nice decorations and the mosaics and, you know. Uh, all, all those, all those fun things that he doesn't experience. Uh, yep. I mean, fun. I don't know if he would like whatever. Um, and then Gaius's wife, Livia is there and his son, Marius. And, uh, she makes a comment like, Oh, is this the Jewish doctor you were telling me about? And Simon's like, what? <laughs> uh, and I, I, you know, Simon's trying to be respectful, but like the, the whole thing is kind of like, whoa very revealing right like something is going on for gaius uh you know he's been putting on a good front but he's you know he's coming home and he's talking about jesus um so eventually Gaius is like i gotta get you out of here and then on the way out simon sees evo who's the the servant boy 
uh, as he's leaving. Yeah, and there's a there's an exchange they have there where so he knows our story and he says, you know, not all of it. And it's there I oh, realized right. where they were going to head with that. I'm like, oh, they're going to make this servant, you know, his own his own son from this slave relationship. And uh, again, we we I don't think we get that from the biblical text, but a, a clever way to weave those details together to explain that 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 reference that usage of the closeness of the relationship that I referenced in whatever the last episode or a few episodes ago in the biblical text the word that's used there to speak of what kind of a servant he is and so it was an interesting way to to put that together uh, as far as narrative goes yeah and later like Gaius um when we see Gaius escorting Simon through the streets um Simon confronts Gaius about Evo and he's like something's going on there. Like he's, he's not in a good spot. And Gaius confesses the family connection at that point. He says, I can no longer pretend that he's not my son. And, uh, there's just a lot of like a lot of culture sharing in this scene. Like yep. Simon is like, explaining, uh, what Shalom Shalom means. Yep. Uh, Gaius is trying to explain like how relationships with servants work. And he's, you know, he, he's like, you know, initially it didn't bother me, but then, yep, you know, all this stuff went down and now I just feel like this thing. And like, obviously his son and the servant are best friends as, uh, yep. as Marius said. And so there's just a lot of complication there. And Gaius is like, you know, I've come, I've come to, I've come to realize that he's, he's just as much a son as, as Marius is. Yep. Yep. Um, so then we're back with Matthew, uh, finding Mary and apologizing, uh, for his outburst. And then we have a, a big flashback scene. We well, see guys before that, I, I, oh. some of the things I caught about when he comes in as he's got muddy feet. Um, Oh yeah. He, he went to, he went to go do what G, like he says, Jesus gets away whenever he's, you know, trying to figure stuff out. So I figured I would like, he's following Jesus's model and uh -huh, Matthew uh -huh. is deliberately changing. Like, he never would have stepped in mud and slowly over the course of this, this last season, especially, but the season before like Matthew, um, he's still Matthew. I hope, I hope. And I assume he always kind of will be, he's always going to have those character, but he's, he is changing though. His aversion to certain things, his ability. And I love that transformation. It's not purely a physical transformation, but his whole character, his countenance, like he, he would walk in with muddy feet and be like, Oh, Oh yeah. And, and he go and he takes his sandals off and you can still tell he like still does that thing with his hands, his germaphobe thing with the hands. And yet, well, and I think he made some kind of comment, like he, he tried to go out and almost immediately he found himself trudging through the mud. And so then he came back, like he wasn't out there that long. Sure. Right. But to, to even have him come in with muddy feet, I mean, season yep. one, Matthew, he steps in oh, a yeah, little, no way. like one little thing <laughs> and he goes back home and changes his entire pair of sandals so i just thought man what a, what an interesting yep. way that his character is developing but anyway you were getting into the backstory my favorite part of this entire episode um I'll, I'll just say before you even get into it like this for me fits in the same category as the bridal from earlier in the the, the donkey bridal from earlier in the season sure it's like this sensationalized obviously not in the biblical text and it feels, but it's not, it's not ridiculously sensationalized. Like, it's not like hard to believe over the top. And I'm still unsure about the bridal. I, I'm, 
I'm like really hopeful that I'm going to be fine when that, whenever that loops back around somehow. But this one, I'm just all in. Like this, this piece of backstory, I, this whole, this whole thing, I just found this this particular sensational story. I just found so unbelievably moving, um, and loved it. Just loved it. One of my favorite, one of my favorite parts, my favorite scenes in the whole thing so far. Yeah. So it's this guy, um, whose name I think is Matthew as well. Yeah. I caught that too. Absolutely. But Gaius is on guard next to Matthew's booth and, uh, this guy comes up and, and they're talking about his debts. Um, the man is trying to talk about Israel and Matthew is just like, flipping through pages and absolutely astonished at the amount of debt this guy has. Turns out he bought all of the debts of his children and his family. And, and he's, you know, he's at the end of his life basically. So he's, he's buying up all their debt somehow. And, uh, and going to, I guess that doesn't transfer when you die. I don't, I don't, I guess that, that has to be what that means. Right. Um, yeah, I, I would, uh, yes, I would assume so. Yeah. But Matthew is trying to find a way to help him out. He's like, do you have any assets? Do you have anything like, and he exhausts all of the possibilities that he can think of. And he's like, okay, well, I got to arrest you then. And the, the man offers a gift to Matthew. Says, thank Matthew you. Miss- I have to arrest you. He's yeah, like, yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so he offers this gift to Matthew. Matthew misunderstands. Uh, he's like, oh, well we could, we could, if it's something of value, like we could try to sell this, we could try to, you know, if it's anywhere close, that'll, that'll help you a lot, you know? And, uh, the guy's like, no, 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 this is, this is something more important than that, um, the, the guy refers to Matthew as my son and Matthew is like all kinds of squirming about that. And he's like, no, 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 you're not one of my relatives. Don't, don't say that about me. Um, and, and the man is just like, Hey hold on to these because someday you're going to figure it out. Someday you're going to need them. And once you figure it out, this, this is a a priceless treasure. Oh man. There, there are just so many things, so many things in this scene. Um, I'm only going to pick like a handful out of my notes. Uh, so many things I loved. Um, I love the clever, like the wit, like this Jewish wisdom that's in this older patriarch character, uh, I loved his continual callbacks to the text. His kind of almost, I wouldn't call it rabbinical, but this Jewish disregard for Matthew's direct questions, he just kind of ignores them and moves on to whatever it is he's he's going to say. I loved Matthew's appreciation for what he called financial acumen. I was like, that that is a great <laughs> phrase. And then there was this. I don't know if you caught this. I only caught it on this last time I watched it. He said, I, I, I'm looking forward to meetings, to seeing the face of my maker, and then he said again, and I really want to know what that, what that again means. It can mean a lot of things and I'm not sure what, maybe it will come back later. Like again, like that it is, did this guy have a vision where he, you know, he's been with God. It, does this guy, is this, is this supposed to be an angel? Like hmm. a more like almost like a Christophany type character. Sure. Is, is it referring to the Jewish, like Jewish understanding, like Jewish Midrash believes in the preexistence of souls. So for the Jewish mind, they're going back like for in the Western, more Christian theological mind, we are created. We have a, we have a beginning origin was a ancient church father who was con, you know, condemned as a heretic partially. One of the teachings that was declared heresy was his insistence on the preexistence of souls. 
So that's not typically a Christian line of thinking, but it is very much a Jewish line of thinking, a preexistence of souls. And so in a lot of ways, when they die, they're going back to uh, their creator. I'm just not sure where that, like they intentionally put that word in the dialogue. I'm like, what, what again? And maybe there's something I'm totally missing. I can often be pretty dense when it comes to this stuff, but <laughs> I, I caught that and I put it in my in my notes. I, I love their reference about... I did not catch that for the record. You did not know. Yeah. I didn't until the second time. And maybe he said something else, but I'm almost positive he said again. And, and, there, and there was like a pause. Like it was a very deliberate... It wasn't just a part of the sentence. Like there's this pause and then he says again. Um, and then and then at one point Matthew says, you know, it feels like, you know, you, you can't really sacrifice... You can't really human sacrifice isn't allowed, and and he says no, but symbolic self sacrifice most definitely is. Yeah, yeah. I like that line. Golly, just the whole this whole dialogue was just so so Jewish, so well done. Um, obviously uh, meaningful for the like just the backstory. I just loved it. It's one of my favorite scenes, and it's not over yet because I, I would tag on to my favorite scene. What Mary's going to say when they get out of the flashback and all that. Yeah. Um, Mary's monologue when this is over with is one of my favorite monologues of of the chosen. Like she has, this, it's not long, but it's this short little theological thing about redemption and us finding ourselves in there. And I, I just thought it was fantastic. Yeah. So the flashback ends, and Mary is explaining to Matthew how the man was actually offering his faith. Oh, and you such know, such a good line. You would think Matthew wouldn't even get the analogy. But it doesn't seem like that's his problem. No. It seems no. like what he doesn't understand or what he says is he doesn't understand why somebody would want that for him. Yes, 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 yes. Mary goes on to share, you know, the story of how she nearly ended her life, uh, but she was redeemed. And uh, she knows that Matthew has felt unworthy this whole time of uh, ministry with Jesus, but he needs to start wearing tassels. Yeah. And feel accepted. Yeah. Yeah, and I just wrote down the power of story between Matthew's story, his backstory, sharing with Mary, Mary sharing her own story that was pretty dark and the redemption she went through following the dove. Like, I just thought, man, there's something about when we hear the stories and maybe that connects to the sensational nature of these other two things I'm talking about. Like, our stories are sensational because that's our experience with God. And that's why we find each other's stories shared honestly and vulnerably so powerful. And they really, really are. So I wrote that in my notes. Yeah. And I think, I think it's actually in the next episode. Um, but Salome is talking to someone and makes a comment about, uh, these past two years. Yes. Something along those lines. Yep. So Matthew has been feeling like very much, he knows he's a part of the group, but feeling like an outsider for two years. Yep. And Mary's like, enough is enough. Like if you don't, if you don't understand that you are a part of this group in every way at this point, like, come on, man, Yep. you gotta, you gotta accept your, your place here. Coming from Mary, especially based on the last episode's conversation with Tamar, like right where she had to accept that. Now she's able to pass that on to Matthew. I love that. Yeah. Uh, beautiful. Uh, so then, then we, we see, you know, Thaddeus is trying to explain to Matthew how to attach the tassels. Cause I guess Matthew has <laughs> never worn them, or at least it's been a very long time. Um, and Matthew's asking about the meaning of the tassels. Thaddeus is kind of explaining that as he walks him through how to attach them. Matthew is completely embarrassed to take off his outer garment. 
uh, Nathaniel interrupts him at one point and <laughs> like does not <laughs> does not get what's going on. Yeah, Thaddeus is just grinning ear to ear, uh, facing away from Matthew, which is great. Um, but what I don't understand about the whole interaction is there are like a whole bunch of people walking around behind them. It's like why is Matthew not? embarrassed about those people who he has no idea who they are yeah i think it's the i think it's the proximity and the fact they're actually conversing in their culture you would not have leered or 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 peered or looked at um you would definitely avert your i think he's far less worried necessarily about the the public in the distance and the people around and he has the person standing right in front of him talking to him making eye contact okay makes sense in a much more intimate proximity that's how i because i notice the same thing i'm like well there's definitely it's not like you're in your private bedroom here bud but <laughs> i don't think in their culture he has that same concern but the fact he has the other concern is in and of itself rewarding in a humorous way great scene um so then we're inside and philip and andrew are explaining what happened in the decapolis to jesus and jesus decides that they're going to travel there and address it and he uh he encourages Philip and Andrew that, you know, this is part of the process. I love that line. This is part of it when everybody gets up and he just looks at them both and says, this is, this is it. Like, this is what it's like. We make mistakes. We, and I feel like I say, I have like a similar kind of line or vibe that I often communicate to students or people that I, I lead like, yeah, this is normal. This is, we're going to, we're going to do this. This is, I just appreciated him consoling them in that way and not like blowing it off but like addressing no this was it is what it is and this is part of what it's going to be like to we're going to make mistakes we're going to screw this up we're going to have the best of intentions and still tick off everybody and knowing that they're two years in at this point like i don't it, it was such a it was such a momentary line like i don't know that we're necessarily so explicitly supposed to date it but just thinking like yeah, it is ready for them to kind of sure. wade in a little bit and get their yep. get their hands dirty with a, a situation like this. So it makes sense. Um, Jesus asked John to have a word and uh, asked him to stay behind and wait for Simon. John is not uh, really having that. <laughs> not, not pleased with Jesus' decision in that moment. And did you catch what Jesus said about like, we don't need, we don't need numbers. We don't need all this stuff. Like, it's not like we're going to have strength in numbers, but right. so what we're dealing with here is hard hearts. And I don't know if you caught this reference, hard hearts like that of granite. And that's why we need, you know, Simon, um, which I'm just now realizing he's not even called Peter. I think I keep calling him Peter here and there in my commentary. You do. You do. Oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> my apologies for all of those episodes that I have done that. Um, Cause we haven't gotten there yet. And and I just love that connection between he's talking about hard hearts and he keeps saying it, hard hearts, like like yeah. hearts of stone, like granite. We need Simon. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, goodness, this is going to come back. I thought that was as very, very well. I'm assuming that's all intentional. And that's very well. I think I can see where they may be headed next season uh, and why Peter needs to be on this trip. And I, I think I can see how they're going to weave this together. And I really, really like it. I, I really like what they've done. Well, and I think probably also a little bit of a tie in with Jesus, not necessarily being like a carpenter as in wood only, but a, a more general craftsman, sure. yep. stone mason kind of thing. Yep. Um, yeah. 
Uh, so then we do see that the group walking on the road and uh, Matthew shown with his tassels here. So uh, he got that figured out, got that set up. and Yep, little travel montage to tie things together. Yeah, and the tassels are are subtle. Like I think, you know, in general, the whole... Like I don't, I'm, nobody else points it out. I don't. I'm assuming they would have seen it at some point, but yep. yeah, they don't. They don't make like a big deal about it. It's like, okay, Matthew's doing this now. Yep. Uh, then we're back with Mary and Tamar working in the house, uh, and Simon enters, and then he leaves, and Zebedee comes up and finds Simon, and he's like, "Why are you still here?" Simon didn't know about the trip. He's like, "You've been really disconnected, and you know you got to do this and that," and uh, Simon. Simon is like, you rebuke me. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he's like, don't play games with me, Simon. So Salome and I were at your, what What, what was that word? It's bris. That's where they bris. they do the circumcision. Yeah. So <laughs> so then John comes in and starts arguing with Simon and, uh, you know, everybody's watching from the background. Um, and John eventually strong arms Simon into uh, going and catching up with the group. Yeah, they, they definitely don't have the friendship. I've always been taught, and I don't know if this is necessarily explicit in the scriptures, but I've always been taught that John and Peter have this really deep abiding friendship. Um, John and Simon. See, now I'm going to be really conscious of what I'm calling him. Um, but Simon <laughs> and John have this deep, but as they've depicted in The Chosen, they don't yet, and maybe they'll they'll bring this together much later, but but at this point, Simon and, and John definitely have almost a, an adversarial. We grew up together, um, almost competitor, fishermen, and that has not taken shape yet. But uh, who knows if it will? Well, and we do kind of see that, like when Simon and John are walking together. Uh-huh. It's forming, know, They're maybe. arguing. Yep. Yep. Yeah, they're arguing. And then Simon is like, you're right. You know, like, ah, you know, I feel like Jesus, you know, he can heal people from a distance. Like, remember? Yep. Back in this other story, like, yep. and then John, you know, in, in his final moment of just, uh, his final moment of ignorance, he, he says, you know, why, why would you be whining when you have somebody like Eden? And, uh, and that, that stops Simon in his tracks. And then yeah, Simon, you know, talks about how Eden wasn't safe while they were gone. And then. John, like it, it breaks through for John. He begins to understand he, he's comforting Simon. Uh, this is where Eden, uh, or this is where Simon mentions that the doctor told Eden, she might not be able to have kids. And, and Maggie made a comment on that. She said, uh, the, the whole line of thought where she thought she could keep it to herself. If it was so bad that she, like that the doctor's telling her she might not be able to have kids again or conceive again, I think is what he said. Um, like she had to have been farther along because typically if you're super early in your pregnancy and like, yeah, it's hard to say like Simon wasn't there, she's alone. So yeah, like nobody's going to notice that, you know, she is or is not avoiding Simon for seven days. Yep. Uh, you know, it just, it seems weird that she wouldn't be around anyone at all, but I don't know, like the way, the way it's portrayed anyway, like she's, she has much more opportunity to be isolated and for people not to realize, you know, what's going on in general. On the flip side, we are also, we also made comment of how much blood was in that, how much blood they commented on in that scene. Right. And maybe it was so traumatic clinically, medically that that was the concern. Who knows? Yeah. And so that, that's what made Maggie feel like she had to have been 
fairly far along at that point for it to be that traumatic probably uh, unless like unless there was yeah i mean that would that would be typical but maybe that's what actually made them so alarmed is this you know a miscarriage at this point shouldn't be like this sure and yeah. yet it is and so and they're i don't want to say uneducated primitive l would get after us for primitivism but in their <laughs> understanding of you know the medical world they perhaps might have maybe there was something alarming about that or something as they portrayed it maybe they tied that together in that way well that's true yeah so yeah maggie was just left like longing for a little bit more of a timeline to understand you know what exactly was going on but Anyway, uh, so Simon makes this comment like, uh, you know, he heals total strangers while I gave up everything for him. Then they they get closer, and uh, I guess I, I should jump back uh, for a moment before we finish the episode. Uh, so we're, we're with the crowd. Leander is watching. He sees Jesus approaching, and he goes and talks to him and starts explaining the situation, and then these two other guys come running up. One of the guys is a, a deaf and mute man. Jesus heals him. Uh, Leander's astonished. Jesus charges all of them to be quiet about this healing, which is hilarious in the context of the next episode. Um, but another man uh, comes riding up. He confronts the group. This guy was um, Nashon. He's a Hellenistic Jew. Yep. I think we determined. Very much so, yes. So, yeah. So he confronts the group and wants to know... Um, why they're teaching the children all of these crazy things. And then Philip and Andrew run up the hill and they find a very large encampment. Yes. And then we, uh, then we get the disciples helpfully identifying groups as they approach. So we have a Syrophoenician group, uh, come up and they ask for a sign or, you know, maybe just some food at least for the time that you've wasted, or why don't you just leave? And then we have some Nabataeans come up. And they're mocking Jesus for the low number of people that he has with him. Which, which who knows? Large crowds. Yeah. And who knows where they're supposed to be in the Decapolis? Because, I mean, those are opposite geographical ends entirely. Syrophoenicians are going to be all the way northwest on the coast. Um, Nabataeans are all the way down in uh, where Petra and South Jordan is today. And even, you know, more south of that. So far southeast, they're literally on opposite ends and they're collide. Not that there wouldn't have those people groups in the Decapolis. They very well could. Have. I'm not saying that's not historically plausible. It's definitely, but it's definitely depicting the diversity of people groups and the collision that that is in the Decapolis. And in this whole thing, like, you know, you mentioned the Messianic secret. He tells them not to tell anybody. They're staying true to the biblical text. And they're also tying together in this episode and the next episode. They're tying a lot of biblical content into one scene, which I have no problem with, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things that I wouldn't necessarily depict or I don't see it happening that way. Or that's not how I teach the Messianic secret or whatever. But they have actually taken a lot of gospel content. They're actually going to get a ton of mileage by cramming a ton of teachings and a ton of stories and a ton of, I think they're going to put the feedings together, I'm assuming, because they're in the Decapolis. 
They do 12 baskets. This is a feeding of the 5,000. So it seems like they're we'll playing talk about of, that. We'll talk about that. All right. <laughs> but yeah, no, there is, there is as in this episode and especially in the next episode, there is an astonishing amount of text. Sure. Right. Absolutely. Which I, I like how they, I mean, they, they, I've been wondering how they're going to make up some miles here and this could be how they, how they did it. Cause they, I'm fine with it. I'm fine with how it's depicted. Um, I'm fine with messing with the chronology and the historicity and putting different, uh, no problems for me. I just definitely noticed how much they were doing here. Yeah, this makes me if, wonder if they have like a writer's war room and they just have like yeah all of the gospels printed off and up on the wall and they're like, okay, let's mark that one off. Let's mark that one off. Let's mark that one off. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know that they're actually trying to cover everything specifically, but it's just like if you were like they just took care of a huge <laughs> chunk of scripture, a lot, <laughs> like a third. Um, so yeah, so we see all these large crowds moving, um, Simon and John are getting close. Uh, John reminds Simon like, Hey, Jesus said that this whole thing depends on you. And Simon, you know, Simon gets there and sees, sees Jesus and starts running towards him. And is that the episode? Is that the final? Is that the closing? That's it. Simon, Simon running to Jesus. Roll the credits. There you go. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful little symbol of what's to come i think yeah absolutely it's hard enough to get immediately into the next episode they just set the stage and i'm chomping at the bit i'll have to wait till next week well marty <laughs> spoiler alert you and i can get right into the next episode <laughs> so let's end this one and get started that's right <laughs> uh well thank you thank you all for joining us uh you can go to baymontestablishment.com find our show notes find groups find events all that stuff Marty is in the middle of his sabbatical as this comes out. So uh, remember that. But whenever you're listening, um, check out the website for all of the most up-to-date ways to get in touch and to um, get engaged with other people and everything else. So thanks for joining us on the Bearmore Podcast. We will talk to you again soon.